Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. So church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 38 as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You were as a lamb to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. Then he, then Jesus, got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Please be seated. So church, the title of this morning's sermon is The Power of God, Part 2. In Part 1, we were in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, where we bore witness to the power of God in the spiritual realm. And we saw that ultimate power does not rest in the hands of the forces of darkness that use power to oppress people and keep them in bondage. Rather, ultimate power rests in the hand of God who uses his power to set people free. And in our verse this morning, verses 38 to 44, we will bear witness to the power of God in the physical realm. And once again, what God tells us here is critically important because God found the fitting to repeat himself four times. This account in Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44, also has a parallel account in Matthew 4, 23 to 25, Matthew 8, 14 to 17, and Mark 1, 29 to 39. Now, before we begin our verses, let's make sure we have our context correct. Jesus is in Capernaum. He left Nazareth 
in order to move down to Capernaum. We previously saw him on the Sabbath, it's still the Sabbath, preaching and teaching the word of God in the synagogue where he not only teaches the people, but he also casts out a, a demon from a demon-possessed man. Now here's verse 38. Then he, then Jesus, got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. Jesus got up and left the synagogue. He was in church, but he got up and he left the building. The ministry of Christ, beloved, has its home base in the church. Now, the proper definition of church is not a place, it's a people. But what Jesus is telling us here is that he got up out of one physical location and left. His public ministry transitioned to a private ministry in someone's home. But God is telling us we as Christians are also supposed to get up and leave the building and get out there. Church does not only take place for two hours on a Sunday morning on 111th Street. It's portable. We take it with us into private meeting spaces, particularly into our homes. Our faith was never designed to be compartmentalized. Our faith is public and it's private. We take it to the mission field, to the baseball field, to the work field. We also take it into our living rooms and to our kitchen table. Church, Jesus right here is on the move. And when God is on the move, we follow. And where did Jesus go? He entered Simon's house. Public service transitions into private ministry. But guess what, church? The reason why Jesus entered into Simon Peter's house was because he had an invitation. God has manners. God is actually very, very civil. God doesn't have to knock on our doors. He could snap his fingers and the door is gone. He could just appear somewhere in our homes. But Jesus is so polite, he always knocks first. And make sure he has an invitation before he comes in. He never forces his way in. And guess what? Sometimes Jesus knocks and people pretend like they're not home. They scream out, let us alone, Jesus. What business do we have with one another? Church, as Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Church, Jesus is knocking all the time. And there are some folks who never open the door for Christ. But Jesus is such in high demand. Whenever he knocks on a door and someone pretends like they're not home, there's always an infinite number of doors that are already open waiting to invite their Lord and Savior in. And guess what? 
When we hear the voice, when we hear Jesus knocking and we open the door, Jesus is a God of grace. Jesus is a God of compassion. He's a fantastic house guest. When Jesus walks in, he's going to bring grace and blessings with him. Now, I'm not going to make an accusation. I'm going to ask the church a question. Knowing that our faith is not just public, it's also private. When I ask you, Christian, about all the private meeting spaces in your life, your workspace, your kitchen table space, your recreational space, your social space, all those spaces that you share with people, with friends, family, people who live in the world at large. Do people in those private spaces know you're a Christian? Do they know you're a Christian because you have already invited Jesus in? And if they don't, my only question is, why not? Now on the one hand, when we open the door, and invite Jesus in, the God of grace brings grace with him. But let's not paint a falsely uh, concocted view of reality because Jesus enters into Simon Peter's home and what does he find there? Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick, telling us what? Even those households that hear Jesus knocking and open the door, they're not going to live a highlight reel. They're not now immune from adversity and hardship. But what the text does tell us is if you don't let Jesus in and adversity strikes, who's not there to help you? Jesus isn't. But when you do open the door, you're not now dealing with that adversity by yourself. You have your Lord and your Savior right next to you who can assist and equip you by His grace to deal with the problem. And look at how clever God is in His Word. Simon Peter's mother-in-law becomes ill. It was Simon Peter's mother-in-law becoming ill which induced the people of the house to open the door and now God comes in. So when a family member, when a loved one, when someone who you hold dear is now sick and infirmed, who now comes the closest to you and stands over their bed? Jesus Christ. Now the text says, Simon Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. This is why I like Luke. He gives you details no other gospel writer gives you. Luke was a doctor. Luke is the only gospel writer to say that she had a high fever, meaning this condition was serious. This is not 99.9. This isn't 100.7, this is 106, 107, 108. This was a high fever. This was not a run-of-the-mill illness. This was an acute, life-threatening, serious medical condition. This woman belonged in an emergency room. Now, before we go any further, Luke says that Simon Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever. What is a fever? A fever simply means that you're hot. Because by, that's how God made us. Our bodies are exothermic. We make heat. 
But a fever means you're making too much eats. It means you're now making something more than normal. Now, we're going to be talking about bad fevers this morning. But there are good fevers. You could be hot for God. You could be on fire for the word. You could be like Jeremiah, chapter 20, verse 9, and have a fire in your bones for God's truth. If you have an intimacy with our God, who is an all-consuming fire, chances are you're going to get hot and have a good spiritual fever. When you're on fire for God, that simply means you don't need a doctor. That's a good thing. That simply means you desire holiness, you hunger for the truth, you delight in Christ's commandments, and you yearn to sit at Jesus' feet. That's what a good fever is. So what's a bad fever? A bad fever is what Simon Peter's mother had. A bad fever is an abnormal elevation of your body temperature. A bad fever means that there's something wrong on the inside. You have a virus, you have a bacteria, you have a parasite, and it's making you sick. But do we know, church, how fevers are actually made? The thing that causes you to have a fever is you. The sickness doesn't actually give you a fever. Your own brain, the thing between your ears, is what gives you the fever. Your brain basically says, there's something alien inside. There's a parasite. There's something wrong. Let's try and cook this disease. Your brain then sending, I'm oversimplifying things, your brain then sends out signals and as a result, your core body temperature now goes up. You are the one that actually causes the fever. And God gave us that ability by design because if your body is now hot, it is now hostile to all these dangerous, infectious parasites. But let's get real. Fevers are not fun. When you have a fever of 104, you are cranky, you are miserable, you are tired, your bones hurt, you're not yourself, you don't have any energy, and when you have a really high fever, like Simon Peter's mother-in-law, you could become delirious, where you're saying crazy things, and your family members will think that you have gone astray, because your talk is not comprehensible. And when your fever is high enough, you, you're anxious, you yearn to be well because the weight of your bodily fever is crushing you in your bed of sickness and you have a yearning to be made well right now. So practically speaking, what is a fever? A fever is too much of something. A fever is too much heat. And the thing that causes the fever is our own brains. The thing that causes the fever is our own minds. So let's now apply this spiritually. There are many individuals who could now have a spiritual fever, where because of an obsession with their mind, 
They have set their minds on something other than God. Now their spiritual temperature increases. Now they're hot on the inside with a fever of lust, with a fever of covetousness, with a fever of pride, with a fever of comparison. And because now they have a bad spiritual fever, they are now not themselves. They are now not the person that God has called them to be. And if that fever is allowed to continue unchecked, that fever is going to begin destroying them from the inside and breaking them down. And when you now have a spiritual fever, because you are not yourself and you're bedridden, you are now incapable of being as effective and as useful in God's kingdom. And you know what the worst part is? Spiritual fevers are contagious. If you hang around other people who have a fever of comparison or a fever of pride and they cough, cough, sniffle, sniffle, sooner or later, you're going to begin feeling ill as well. And the crucial theological insight to understand, church, is that sin is the root cause of all spiritual fevers. Sin is the root cause of all spiritual fevers. Sin warps our spirits, sin warps our mind, so that now it is depraved, and the spiritual disease of sin without Jesus Christ, there's no Tylenol or Motrin you can take to break the fever. It always has a 100% mortality rate, and the fever that is caused by sin irrevocably ends in death. Because sin, is the ultimate cause of all spiritual fevers. Now, before someone is touched by Jesus Christ, they may have a spirit fever, they may have a soul fever, they may have a psychological fever, but who is the ultimate healer? Who is the ultimate divine physician? Who has power? Who has authority over spirit, mind, and body? Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 39 says, And standing over her, Jesus impersonally sits to teach, but when he's coming to show compassion and heal someone, he stands over them. And standing over her, Jesus rebuked the fever and it left her. Church, there's a type of spiritual fever. There's a type of spiritual disease of sin that only Jesus Christ can heal. Because by his atonement on the cross, he not only gave the appropriate spiritual prescription so that now we are free from the penalty of sin, death. We are also, by the power of his blood, set free from the power of sin reigning over us right here and now in this life. And how did Jesus heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law? He rebuked the fever. He sent forth his word. Because as we established last week, the word of God has 
power. The Word of God is what brought the cosmos into existence, and the Word of God is the means, is the conduit by which God uses to make people well and turn a sin-diseased heart into a Holy Spirit-infused one. Now, before I move on, we have to make mention of something. Did Simon's mother-in-law pray for herself? She didn't. What does the text say? It says everyone in the house asked Jesus to help her. Why did they ask Jesus to help her? Because she was sick. And guess what? If she had a high fever, that means she probably couldn't pray for herself. Church, this little insight adds weight and validation to the power of intercessory prayer. There may be people who have spiritually high fevers who can't pray for themselves or won't pray for themselves because they don't even realize they are sick. But as James chapter 4 tells us, when a fellow brother, when a fellow sister in Christ is ill, if they are unable to make supplications for themselves, we now, as intercessors, ask Jesus to touch them on their behalf. So Jesus, by his word, rebukes the fever, demonstrating the power of God in the physical realm. But here's how Jesus works. As I told the church already, the fever is not the problem. The fever is caused in response to something else. But when Jesus touches you, when Jesus heals you, he not only heals the symptom of the fever, he also heals the disease. He also gets to the root of the problem and eradicates whatever illness is making you sick. If you have a fever of covetousness, he gives you a new heart, so now you don't desire something that's empty, something that's void. And what he now does is provide himself, who is the all-satisfying, eternal God. If you have a fever of thirst and lust after material things, he changes now the desires of your heart so that now you drink from the fountain of his grace, which is eternal and overflowing. If you have a fever of acceptance... He now makes you realize that in Jesus Christ, your heavenly Father looks down on you and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And if through Christ we find acceptance with our heavenly Father, why would we ever work and labor for the acceptance of men? A person did not heal Simon's mother-in-law. Medicine did not heal Simon's mother-in-law. Philosophy did not heal Simon's mother-in-law. An idea did not heal Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus did. And Jesus not only made her feel better by getting rid of the symptoms, he made her well. He got rid of the fever and eradicated the indwelling disease. How do we know that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was healed? By her response, what does the text say? Verse 39, and she immediately, and she immediately got up and waited on them. Simon mother, Simon's mother-in-law's response is telling 
We don't even know her name. When she was healed, did she write a song? Did she go outside and broadcast? Look at, look at me, everybody, I'm now well. Did she do anything demonstrative that drew attention to herself? Did she begin a prayer service and a healing service? Everyone come to my house and I'll charge you $5 to come in. She didn't. What did she do? She immediately got up and began serving her Lord in something simple, in something plain, in something ordinary, in something as boring as serving her Lord and Savior as he sat in her son-in-law's house. Church, it's the simple things in life that go uncelebrated. It's the things that no one else is privy to that comes from the most genuine place, from people who have been the recipients of God's grace and now have a genuine attitude of gratitude in their hearts. Because people who are genuinely touched and healed by Christ are eager to serve him. Now church, when we look at people overall in the Bible who are afflicted with an illness, here's an overriding theme. God tends to allow particular individuals to suffer from an illness because there's always a faith lesson in the affliction. Let me say that again. God tends to allow particular individuals to suffer from particular illnesses because there's always a faith lesson. There's something called sanctified illness, meaning... When you are now afflicted, when you have a fever, when you are now broken down, that crisis is now a door through which God uses to tell you something. God uses to open your eyes to see something. That faith lesson may be for you. That faith lesson may also be for other people. And what does Simon's mother-in-law tell us? Look at her response. Look at how she immediately went into action. She did not spend a second dwelling on what Jesus did. She immediately began what? Serving him. The point of this miracle was not the miracle. The point of the miracle was so that with her renewed strength, she may now begin glorifying God. Because the point of the healing wasn't her. The point of the healing was the healer, the source from which her healing flowed. And I say all that to say, church, we live in a world where so many individuals suffer from a diverse manner of psychological or bodily disease, and they pray for healing. They pray for God to touch them. But here's the reality. There are some people who want the healing for themselves. And the second they get better, they will dive immediately back into the thing that got them sick in the first place. The miracle, the point of the miracle is never the miracle. The point of the miracle is the miracle worker. And because Simon's mother-in-law 
immediately began persevering in private, that tells us something, that her belief, her inward heart condition of gratitude for Christ was real. Because guess what, church? Anyone can pretend in public. Anyone. But only God's chosen, only those whom God has called in the minutia of everyday life, only they will persevere in private. Only they, when only they know how many tears they shed. Only they, when step by step and day by day, they spend 30 minutes, 60 minutes, three hours in their prayer closets when they do things that no one will ever know about. That is the perseverance of, of God's godly elect in private. As J.C. Ryle once said, Simon Peter's mother-in-law was made well in the moment, and in the same moment made strong and able to work. Our Savior not only gives mercy that forgives, he also gifts renewing grace so that as many that receive him as their great physician are not just patients, but now they are sons and daughters of God who serve their Heavenly Father. Because, church, those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. And those who truly serve God do so out of genuine, inward gratitude. Because Simon Peter's mother-in-law knew she was risen. She was lifted up out of her bed of sickness because Christ picked her up. Because Christ lifted her up. Now, verse 39 says that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was healed immediately, instantaneously. People see me in the office all the time, and they say, Dr. Sadafel, I need to get better in an hour. I have something to do tonight. Give me something good. I need to be better by tomorrow morning. Fix me now. To which I always respond, medicine is not magic. Here's an antibiotic, twice a day for a week. You're gonna feel the same for a day, day and a half. Give the medicine some time to work. It's slow, it's progressive, it's gradual. You must finish the entire course. That's how a natural healer heals. But when God heals someone, it is instantaneous. It doesn't depend on time because our God transcends time. Time works for him. He is not limited by the constraints of time. Whenever there's a difference, church, between God supernaturally healing someone and God using natural means to make someone better. When God miraculously uses his divine power in the physical realm to make someone well, there are certain signs, there are certain marks. That healing is never delayed. It is always complete. There's always a certainty of cure, and it's always verifiable, meaning people can see someone who's blind. People can see someone who has head-to-toe leprosy. People can see someone who can't walk. Then Jesus says a word or touches them, and then immediately, in the blink of an eye, they are a brand new 
person. And it was always done publicly so there were eyewitnesses. You know what Jesus never did? He never cured anyone of anxiety in private. He never cured anyone of vague, undivine feelings that no one else can verify. He always healed objective, verifiable, organic disease. What is the point? The point is that there are many healers, quote-unquote, in this day and age who don't do what Jesus did. They use a smoke and mirrors trick to delude people that they're actually doing healing but they have no demonstrative evidence of divine power. There's a guy who's on YouTube who made himself famous by going around healing people. He would approach individuals and say, hey, so-and-so, it looks like one leg is longer than the other. And the person would say, really? I never knew that. And then he'll say, I'm gonna heal you. And then by camera tricks and by manipulating what people see on the video, that person is quote-unquote healed, which has nothing to do with God demonstrating his divine power to heal someone in the physical realm. They are always cured immediately, and there is always certainty of a cure. Because their certainty, beloved, Jesus knows nothing of half-cures or half-finished work. Whomever Jesus touches is given a new heart and a brand new risen spirit. No one is ever one-half saved and no one is ever made one-fourth Christian. The minute the Holy Spirit regenes us and turns our hearts and minds. That second instantaneously, we are now once and forever changed and justified and therefore right in the eyes of God forever. Now before I leave Simon and Peter's mother-in-law alone, we have to see that sequentially, she was healed, she was made better, she was made well first, and then she began serving. She was made well first, and then she began serving. You cannot begin properly serving your Lord and Savior unless you are healed first, because people who are healed by God know for what reason they were healed for. And that has to honor and glorify God. Broken people know one thing, brokenness. So people who are not healed, people who are broken will break people. People who are not healed, people who are hurt, all they know is hurt. So hurt people now hurt people. But only healed people can help people. Only healed people know who healed them, Jesus, and for what they were healed for, for the honor and glory of God. Healed people help people. Verse 40, while the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases, brought them to Jesus, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Notice this. Notice that people who dwelled in and around Capernaum, they waited until the Sabbath was over before bringing the sick and needy to Jesus. Telling us what? 
that as observant Jews, they still obeyed the word of God and the Sabbath requirements. They still remained faithful to those mandates in the word of God before they brought them to the miracle healer, Jesus. Telling us what? That all the individuals who received miraculous healing from Jesus were diligent to obey the word of God. And what Luke does in verses 40 to 41 is he makes a clear distinction between people who were physically unwell and people who were demon-possessed, because there's a difference, just as Mark says in Mark 1.32. Now Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law by rebuking the fever, by using his word. How did he heal the people described in these verses? He laid hands on them. He touched them. He very personally and intimately reached out his hand and touched them. Because, church, we serve a personal God. We don't serve an impersonal force. We serve a God where his children's names are written in the palms of his hands, and he uses those same hands to touch those who are afflicted and to make them well. Jesus never did a group healing. Jesus never said a prayer over 30 or 40 people and made them all well. He personally either spoke to someone or he personally touched them. How did Jesus do it? By the laying on of hands. Now this idea of laying on of hands is not something new in the New Testament. It's actually quite old. Because in the Old Testament, laying on of hands symbolized two things. Laying on of hands symbolized taking something bad away and depositing something positive. In the Old Testament, when someone brought an animal sacrifice to the tabernacle or to the temple, they would lay their hands on the animal to symbolically demonstrate their sin was now being transferred from them to the sacrifice. And now that animal would make an atonement for their sin. So in that laying on of hands, something bad was being taken away. Exodus 29.10. But laying on of hands in the Old Testament also symbolized depositing something positive. When Jacob met Joseph's two sons, what did he do? Genesis 48.14. He laid hands on them to bestow a blessing. So when Jesus lays hands, it not only symbolizes taking something negative away, it also symbolizes depositing something positive. So not only does Jesus have divine power that is exercised in the physical realm, he also exercises that power with grace, with compassion, with kindness, by personally and individually laying hands on those who are afflicted. When Jesus preached his first sermon, he said that he came to set free those who are oppressed. And what Jesus is now doing in these verses is he's personally taking his hands and breaking the chains that were keeping people in 
bondage. And do we realize, church, that Jesus touched people when they were broken? Jesus touched people when they were filthy? Jesus touched people when they were outcasts? Jesus touched people when they were at their worst? Jesus touched people when people felt like no one would ever want to touch them. But that's who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't heal perfect people. He doesn't save perfect people. He doesn't bring people who are already refined and ideal into his kingdom. He touches and heals sinners just like me and you. He touched us in order to make us well. He touched us because that is who Jesus Christ is, the Savior and healer who has all power, but exercises that power with compassion. So God uses his power to touch the afflicted when he doesn't have to, to not only take away disease, sin, and iniquity, but to, but to bestow upon us grace. Because while God's justice is finite and contained, church, his grace is unlimited. Verse 41 says, Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Here's a simple fact here. Knowledge saves no one. Knowledge saves no one. The demon knew Jesus is the Son of God. The demon knew Jesus is the Christ. He had lots of knowledge. But would that demon ever be saved? No. Here's how faith works. You begin with the facts, the historical reality that Jesus is a real person, that he was crucified, and he resurrected from the dead. If you don't believe those facts, you're an atheist. If you believe those facts are true and then assent to the reality that they are in fact true, now you're a demon. Now you've graduated to demon-level comprehension. But what saving faith is, it's not only knowing the facts, but assenting to their truth and then trusting in and then cleaving to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, where it's not only head engagement of knowledge, it's also heart engagement and will engagement. Church, knowledge saves no one. You cannot change a man's heart by simply educating him all the way up to heaven. It doesn't work like that. It involves a transformed mind, heart, and will wrought by the power of God. Now, Jesus did not allow this demon to speak because the text says the demon knew him to be the Christ. And at the end of our verses, Jesus will say that he has a mission to fulfill and he has to go to other cities in Judea to preach and teach the gospel. Here's why, church, Jesus would not allow this demon to prematurely proclaim the reality that Jesus is the Christ. 
because the truth of who Christ is and the full weight and import of Christ's public ministry always registers best after the resurrection. It always registers best looking back on the other side of complexity. Jesus could have spent 100 years, 200 years, 300 years doing miracles. He could have spent a thousand years doing wonders all throughout the world. But without the cross, without his blood sacrifice on the cross to make an atonement for sin, Jesus would not be able to redeem those for whom he was sent to die. Looking forward before the crucifixion and resurrection, People wanted Jesus to be a political messiah, a social messiah, an economic messiah, a military messiah. But now looking back after the crucifixion and resurrection, we now see that Jesus is a spiritual messiah who never cured poverty, who never gave Jews a natural kingdom on earth, who didn't make the rich less rich, and who did not make the poor middle class. He's a spiritual Messiah whose ultimate concern is a spiritual God and to redeem a spiritual people who will now spend eternity in a spiritual paradise, worshiping and glorifying a spiritual God. The truth of Christ always registers better on the other side of complexity post the cross. Last couple of verses. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. In Mark's narrative, chapter 1, verse 35, it tells us that Jesus went away and he was praying. Because as we'll see in Luke's gospel going forward, Jesus is a man of prayer. Jesus is actually praying for his church right now. He's an intercessor as exercised in his priestly office. Here's a simple point, church. This is not a one-to-one -one correlation. But if you seek to do anything better in your Christian life, if you seek to have more power, if you seek to have more effectuality in whatever it is you're seeking to do in service to God, that power is secured through prayer. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but generally speaking, more prayer equals more power. And the church at Capernaum, the people in the town of Capernaum, the text says, they sought after Jesus. In contrast, the church at Nazareth, the church at Nazareth kicked God out of town. They tried to murder him. And when Jesus left, they forgot. And as Psalm number 9 tells us, those who forget about God purchase their one-way ticket to Sheol in advance. But in contrast to that church, the people at Capernaum did not want Jesus to go. They implored him to stay. They wanted him to remain in their midst. But even though Jesus had to go to preach the kingdom of God, the church at Capernaum remembered God. They remembered his presence. They remembered his touch. They remembered his healing. They remembered his word. They did not forget about God. 
So even though he physically left, he remained vibrant in their hearts and their minds because they were continually remembering the Messiah. And why did Jesus leave Capernaum? God had one son, and that son was called to be a Bible preacher and teacher. So Jesus left Capernaum in order to fulfill his purpose, to preach. Jesus' primary goal in his public ministry was not miracle doing. It was preaching the word of God because that is where true power lies. Romans 10, 17. That is the means by which God still uses to turn hearts to him in saving faith. And how would the known world at that time know about the Messiah unless they had a preacher to tell it to them? So Jesus was a preacher. What did Jesus preach about? The gospel, the good news. What is the gospel, the good news? It's a proclamation, it's an announcement that the king, Jesus is here, and the king brings his kingdom with him. Verse 43, but Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The kingdom of God is the topic Jesus preached about the most. So what does the kingdom of God refer to? It doesn't refer to a natural kingdom with borders. It refers to the reign of God. And the kingdom of God was preached not only as a present reality, as in Jesus is now here. It was also preached as something yet to come, a future hope. So the kingdom of God is preached as already and not yet. Jesus is here, but one day he's going to come back and inaugurate his kingdom forever. The kingdom of God includes all those people who have saving faith in Jesus because he is the king who reigns in our hearts and a means by which God uses to call to bring individuals into the kingdom of God is by preaching the gospel. Hence, Jesus must leave Capernaum. He must go to preach the kingdom of God. And that, of course, is the only kingdom that matters, church, because it is the only kingdom that lasts forever. In closing, I'll say this. In the short number of verses we cover today, we see the power of God at work. Yes, God's power is magnificent, awesome, and mighty because God is. That power is also very personal and applied in non-overwhelming ways. The power that brought the cosmos into existence is also the same power that stands at a bedside, touches the broken, and restores. Only Christ uses his power to heal the brokenhearted and lift up those who are powerless. As a natural physician, I can say, I am, I am very limited in power, and I'm also limited in whom I can treat. 
But when we talk about Christ now, there is no ailment or disease of a spiritual heart that he cannot cure. He can cure a fever of lust. He can cure a heart disease of unbelief. He can also cure a mind disease of worry. But Jesus not only makes you feel better and treats the symptom, he makes you a brand new person. He makes you a new creature. So now a heart that once hated and despised God is now a heart that sings to its Savior. Now ears that hated and despised the preaching and teaching of the word desire to hear nothing else. Now eyes that were only used to seeing darkness and reveling in that which is dim now delight in his marvelous light. Church, today we bore witness to the power of God in the spiritual realm. But to experience Christ's power in your personal life, you must first admit that you are powerless because no one in this narrative healed themselves. Everyone was made well and cured of the spiritual disease of sin by the ultimate spiritual healer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes that you are the ultimate healer of any and all things. We are finite creatures, and therefore we break down. Our bones, our hearts, our nerves, we are fragile, O Lord, and powerless. But we know, we trust in you that you are the ultimate source of power, you are the ultimate healer, and you are the one who hears the cries of your servants when they make their ailments known to you. Lord Jesus, touch our spirits and make us well. Restore us, lift us up, and fashion our spiritual hearts that we will be on fire for you, O Lord, and have a burning zeal and passion for everything that is of the light and everything that is spiritual. And also, O Lord, give us a heart that disdains and has a visceral reaction to turn away from everything of the darkness. Knowing, Lord Jesus, that you are the most precious treasure that, that there is. You have never wrought a work in someone's heart for them to go and act sickly or for them to do things that sick people do. You have wrought that work that we may be and act as healed people that use our newfound spiritual health to serve you and to glorify your name. Transform us, O Lord, by your power and use us as your vessels to do what you have called us to do. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.